Good evening, everybody. Yes, and welcome to Area 22 Productions. The show is 22 now, and I am, of course, your host, Mark Mendoza. And um, last week, we had a, another bandmate of mine on and a great friend, Dee Snyder, and I'm lucky to have a second sister on this week. There are so many things I could say especially positive about this gentleman here on the phone. You know, he manager, founder, best-selling, best-selling author, I say so, um, has his own podcast, and above all, one of my bestest buddies in the world, and I'm not kidding, one of my best friends. Um, please, everybody, a nice, warm Area 22 production. Welcome for the great J.J. French. Yes. Thank you, Marky. You know, I am three times 22 plus four. So (laughs) (laughs) we're we're, we're diving right into the math. Oh, my God. Right right into the math. Right into. Ah, ah. Right into the. That's amazing. You know, it's uh, I had some uh, some math equations for my age, too, but I don't want to do them here on the air. (laughs) It doesn't make me feel good. I'm collecting social insecurity. Yeah. <laughs> social insecurity. You know, um, of course, we're coming off of a tremendous high, being inducted into the Heavy Metal Hall of Fame um, out in uh, in California uh, only about a, a week ago, right? Yeah. Only about a you week know, ago. I'm, I mean, Mark, a, two, a month ago, you and I were in Long Island at the Long Island Music Hall of Fame. And yeah, even well, though we were inducted in 2006... Even though finally, we were inducted, yeah, they like, finally they finally have a home and did a, a tremendous Twisted Sister display. People uh, have to go there and see it. Um, it. It really is another. So, um, you know, pretty good for a band that doesn't play live anymore, for the most part. Are right? <laughs> Just yeah. keep sending the checks in, folks. And, yeah, uh, you know, The more you send, the less we'll play. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, the more you send the checks, the less we'll play. <laughs> I guess they've been sending a lot of checks because we haven't played in six years. <laughs> no, but you know it was it was it, it was it was fun to get back in there and just you know mess around. I mean, no pre- really was no pressure. No, right? it was nothing. It was just get up there and uh, you know we, we kicked ass, man. We nuked the place. It was great. Yeah. You know nobody. Yeah, we, no- we, we we looked at Portnoy and said, "How do you play these songs?" <laughs> <laughs> and he goes, "This is how you play them." Oh, okay, right. You know them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Mike Portnoy. So, really, what did it feel like to get back on stage with, uh, you know, your sisters, your band, well, if, bandmate I, sisters? I, I would be. I would be. Um, I would be dishonest if not to say the call that Eddie Eddie Ojeda made two days prior was a little, uh, you know, stressful. Slightly, yeah. You know, like just slightly, you know, where he said, um, you know, I can't, I've got COVID, I can't come out. I mean, you know, we're always a unit. And it's one thing to get over AJ's situation because, you know, we had Mike to to play it and to get familiar. But, you know, uh, Eddie's not there. And Eddie said, well, I don't think you should play without me. And I said, Eddie, I I, honestly, I said, if it was me, I would say the band, get someone to replace me. If it was D, I would tell Sebastian Bach to come in. Because the thing is, when you're out there and you have expectations, you know, you just do it. You have to figure out a way to do it. And one thing Twisted has always been really good at because we have been confronted with so many problems along our history is how to solve them. 
And and the sol- the solution to this problem was, you know, like 45 minutes away in Las Vegas. A flight, yes. It was a flight, you know, yeah. and the fact that Keith was Keith. there. Yes. And that he was a tech and he was a great player and he's a great guy. I mean, he's like Portnoy like that, you know what I mean? He's just like, no BS, what do you need? I'm there. We called him up. We said, can you make it? I mean, it was like, what? We, we called him up on, on the Wednesday and yeah. said, we have, a, excuse me, on the Tuesday, we said, we have rehearsal tomorrow. Yes. Can you make it? Can you make it? And he went, yeah, I'll, I'll figure out a way to do it. And he, he made did. it to rehearsal. He did, yep. He took off, uh, you know, besides play, he had a gig, which he didn't make, but he had to take off of his regular job to also come right. and be with us. So he did, uh, he really stood up there and, uh, you know, in rehearsal, um, of course, you know, you and I, we always analyze situations, you know, how does this go? What do we want to do? What's happening? You know, we always do. Not that the other guys don't get involved, but you and I always do that. And um, we walked into that rehearsal studio, and the fact that we had Mike Portnoy behind us was a was an amazing plus. But Keith got right up there, man. He just stood up at the plate and hit a home run. Yeah, you know, and you know how lucky we stadium. were that Mike Portnoy really had an opening in the schedule. Because all, all kidding aside with Mike, does he ever not play with somebody someday? I mean, it's I, I, like, I, I, yeah, does he actually have two days off? I, I said, the first <laughs> thing I said to him when I saw him at the at the rehearsal studio, I said, Mike, so what, this year you're in 146 bands? He goes, no, 148. <laughs> 148 minutes. <laughs> you know the fact the fact that he was available those two days you know forget about i mean just think about the chances of this not getting off of not happening because we didn't yeah. have the people to play you know sure. remember mike couldn't do the thing in vegas um yeah. that the, the 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 las vegas uh magazine heavy metal awards right we had to have uh, frankie benelli frankie benelli yeah, and he the was late wonderful. Great, the late great frankie benelli played yeah, with us it was amazing exactly yes. but it wasn't a concert it was like two songs and yeah. frankie you know them uh you know i mean he did he did a, a wonderful job he was phenomenal he talked about the late great uh, extremely missed uh, uh, amazing drummer and a yeah, great guy a, and a great guy yeah yeah. Uh, but you know he he came in when Portnoy just couldn't get on that date. But you know, but to Mike's credit, he his first gig with the band was recording that movie. You know, the live show in Vegas. That was his first was gig. His first Think gig. about that. Basically, <laughs> yes. yes. How crazy is that? that? Crazy, really. Yeah, you and know, Mike, we're going on tour, but we're we're going to record a live DVD, and you have to know all your parts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no pressure. No pressure. Just show up and play perfectly. Yeah. And he did. Yeah. yeah. I mean, a month after AJ passed, basically. I mean, yeah. it was just, he did. you know, oh, God. I don't like that text he sent today. It was a very heartfelt and emotional. Yeah. I, I didn't know if emotional. we were going to. I don't know if we were going to talk about that on the air. But uh, it was when I first saw it, 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 you know, it just it hit me hard like a brick in the chest, you know, and uh it's like wow, man. That's that's just. It got me misty eyed. It really did. I wasn't kidding I started, when I wrote that. I started that. crying. Yeah, actually. it got me misty eyed. And nobody knows what we're talking about, though. We should. Should I read it? I'll read it. I mean, I, I don't know. Or how should Dio, we just talk of the how, gist of it? The how, gist how do of it? we? How do we? I don't know how Dio feel about it. Well, he just had. He had a dream, and he saw AJ in the dream, and and he said that it was so real, that it was frightening. Yeah, he said and, that he was able to. He had. He saw AJ in a dream. AJ Pirro, and he said that AJ was so real that he he hugged him. He wasn't a ghost; it was real. 
And, uh, you know, he was really shooken up when he woke up from that, that dream and he shared it with us. And, uh, wow, just, yeah, I was misty-eyed. I miss AJ every single day, you know? Yeah. I, I do. Yeah. I think about him every single day. Yeah, I think about him every yeah. day. Yeah. Absolutely do. And um, uh, Dee's description of the dream was so vivid. Vivid. And, and it, you know, and it doesn't take much to get me to cry about it. <laughs> AJ, it really doesn't take Oof. much. No. You know? Yeah, I got misty-eyed without a doubt. No. So it was, it was an incredibly touching... And he said it was like he says you know in a dream you hug someone but they're not you know they just they're they're not there they're he not said, real yeah but he said that AJ was a ghost and knew that he was dead and D knew that he was dead but when he hugged him he was alive I mean he was hugging him yeah he was hugging God. him yeah I got chills Laura I got chills I, I mean I I looked at that text from D for a good five or six minutes. I mean, it was short. It wasn't a whole story. Right, it, was, right. it was a very short text. And at first, I, I wasn't sure what he was really saying. But then I realized that he, you know, it was a real dream that he had. You know, it was actually last night. Yeah, you know, and it affected him heavily. Is the point like really heavily? Yeah, you know? tremendously heavily. Yeah. Yeah, and then and then he, you know, people um, always ask me. Do you guys get along? Do you guys get along? They don't really get it, Mark. They don't really understand that you, me, D, and Eddie have a cultural connection that's just daily. I mean, people don't understand it. Yeah, they, they, yeah, we, they don't. You know, there was there was a time and a place where, you know, um, you know, you and I always stayed in touch, but we didn't talk to everybody else for right. for a few years, and yeah, and, true. it didn't happen again. You know, it was everybody's friendly. Everybody talks. You know, we have um, <laughs> we have some of the funniest uh, texts going around between us when when the jokes start going. You know, really, I mean, just I got to pull over and and if I'm driving, I don't read a text, but I'll pull over and read it. Uh, you know, I don't text and drive. I really don't. So I'll pull over and read it. <laughs> I'm, I'm laughing so hard. I'm crying. So, yeah, yeah. It's know, just a, it's a language we have, and we and do. I think it, I think people have um, uh, some people just want to create issues that don't exist, and um, and I get it because we all have fantasies of how we think our favorite bands are. You know, because we don't know how our favorite bands are. We really don't. But I can tell you, this band, there's a. Um, you know, how do you, we're together like 40, 50 years at this point, you know? I mean, come on. I mean, yeah. Eddie and I have been together for 55 years, right? right. That's crazy, right? That's crazy right. enough. Right. Me and Eddie have been together more than 55 years. Yeah. And, and, and D, Eddie and me have been together for like 50, for like, you know, four, 48, and you've been in there for 46. I mean, forget it. It's years. a lifetime. 46 it's a lifetime. years, yeah. It's a it lifetime. Is. It's a lifetime. Yeah. So a lifetime. We, have a, yeah. we have a connection at this time that didn't, even though we stopped playing, didn't break. And, uh, you know, like, you know, I'm so glad you were able to come on tonight that I had, you know, D on last week. It was originally going to be D tonight and you last week, but you had a, a prior commitment. And, uh, you know, it, it, I got, you know, I, I know what it was like. You described it to me on stage and you're going to describe it again in, in a minute or two. But for me, you know, when I got up there and I was like, I had this speech prepared and some funny stuff to say, but. You know, it kind of all went away, and I just did it right off the cuff. And, you know, I mentioned, you know, you and Dee and Eddie, Mike Portnoy, and even Keith. And I said, you know, I want to thank these guys on the stage with me for letting me do what I love one more time. Yeah. You know what? And I, and I, I, 
of course, you know, I did my stories and stuff, but you know what? Great, I should have. I, I, I know, but and that poor kid. I don't know if he's alive or dead anymore. Like that kid, the fat kid with the, you know, the, <laughs> That's I, right. you know. But That's but right. but you know what? The the story aside, the fact is, you know, how, you know how you ended yours by saying, you know, to the fans, you know, without you, there's no us. You know, you, that's how you pretty much ended your speech. You said you thank the fans. Oh yeah, without said, yeah, without them, yeah. we wouldn't have but, anything. True, but I, you know, here's what I think. I think that without us there was no them and without them there was no us in other words we created a quasi religious experience that they that they fell in love with sure, you know sure. and then they fed us back the love and we got it but the, but the thing is is that here's what i should have ended it with all right so follow this sentimental comment without without us there's no them without them there's no us but without you eddie and d there's no me and that's the truth yeah yeah, well, yeah, you, you, you're actually responsible for starting this mess. Yeah. You really are. You're responsible for starting this mess. And uh, I say mess very sincerely. Because <laughs> I'm not really with, with all the love that. in the world that mess can possibly evoke. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, wait, you know what? Here's how you're really going to hate me. You ready for this? I had like this whole you. thing. Go ahead. Because I was thinking, what could I say tonight? You know, it's going to be kind of interesting and have people, you know, already who, who are, who, who say, well, we, you know, how many people say we, we never saw the band, we didn't live the, the time when you did? You know, you and me and Dee were old enough to have seen our, our heroes, right? Oh, yeah. We're, we're, our, we're our heroes. Our so heroes, you tell yeah. the story about, you know, when you listen to, you know, the, the fudge of, or cream outside of, of uh, the, the, um, the uh, what, what was it the, the the ice skating rink near your house in West Hampstead? Remember, Island Garden or something? Twelve years old, and I stood out there and heard the sound check. The Island Garden, yes. right? Island Garden, right, right. on Hampstead yes. Turnpike, yes. Not, not far from where you, your, your mom's house was. Right, right, right of course. So, and, and that's what fueled you, you know. And, and and what fuels our passions is 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 interesting. So I was thinking about writing an article for Goldmine. Uh, I retired from the Beatle articles because I wrote them for five years. I wrote everything I needed to write about them. I have nothing else to say. So I basically said to them, I'm done writing the Beatles series, but I'm going to think of another series. So I came up with an idea. And it, here's here's what happened. So Jeff Beck dies, right? Yeah. And everybody freaks out. Yeah. Everyone we know freaks out. Everyone, Every guitar player we know freaks out. Every guitar player we know has now anointed him. As the greatest ever, like they all say he's the greatest who ever lived. And I thought about that a lot. I thought about it heavily, and I thought, you know, um, in 1966, when Jeff Beck saw Jimi Hendrix at the Scotch of St. James Club in England, he walked out of that club and said, I may as well stop playing. Right. Jimi was that far ahead of everybody in 1966. Yes. And I mean, with all due respect to everybody else, Jimi was light years ahead of everyone else and scared the crap out of everybody everybody and then you know he died four years later and and all these people that came up with him um especially jeff beck was able to take that and just move it move the needle and jeff beck created a whole new language and sure. I, I i'll give that to jeff beck because he's he is one of the greatest but i started thinking mark about the guitar players that i saw that that um excited me when I was 16 years old. So I wrote. So I went to my. You know how I keep um, all the the Fillmore books and all my yeah, ticket stubs, all, the, all that crap. Playbills, yeah, of course. Yeah, playbills and everything. So I wrote down. I wrote down the shows that I saw 
in just the year 1969, right? Just just 1969. Uh, because seeing these artists that I'm about to rattle off at you, these were, you know, every time I could see them, I was 16 years old in 1969. So I don't know if you did the same thing, but I would go to see a show and then I would come home and I'd put the guitar on, stand in front of a mirror and pretend I was that person. Right. And that's, that's what I did. Did you, did you like come home after a show and, and do that kind of a thing at all? No, but I, I would often pick up uh, my guitar or bass guitar and figure out what I thought they did different from what I knew on an album. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, try to remember riffs and feels, you know, uh, especially on bass, uh, of what I saw on that stage. Because to me, it was live was the the um, essence of how someone puts feel into music. You know, you could play whatever you want in the studio, but live, you can't pull it off live, then put it down and walk away. So when you saw guys like Geezer Butler, yeah, and you saw guys like um, Greg Ridley, like Greg Ridley, for John example, Paul Jones, yeah, yeah, you're, yeah, those guys, uh, and you saw them play, did, you, you went home that night, you just went like, oh my God, you were infused with more passion, right? You just were infused, yeah, with more, yeah, more Felix Papalardi, even Leslie West, yeah, sure, right, right, yeah. So, so here we go. Here's the list, right, of the guitar of who I saw, and I'm going to say month by month, because this is enough to have people truly hate me. Okay, and I will say this: each one of these artists, from the bands that they represent, because I saw the bands they were in, and I didn't just see the guitar player; I saw the bands. But obviously, I saw the guitar players, but I saw the bands. So, in on January tenth, nineteen sixty-nine, I went to the Fillmore East and saw BB King open. Uh, Johnny Winter opened for BB King. Ooh. That was the first time I went to the Fillmore, and wow. of course, I get to see BB King headline. And I get to see Johnny Winter, who at that point was probably the fastest guitar player in the West. I, I would think he was very fast. Like, he was great. Johnny Winter, yeah, at the time. Johnny, amazing. Sure, sure. So, so that, that was January 10th. On February 11th and 12th, I saw the Grateful Dead twice. Now, you know, there are people who love him and people who hate him and people who think Garcia is God and people who don't care. And I have to say that I, I think Garcia is great for the dead. I'm not a fan of Garcia's playing. I'm not a fan of his tone. But he certainly was perfect for the Grateful Dead. That cannot be denied and he's a guitar hero so i saw the dead on february 11th on january 31st however um i saw led zeppelin's first show in new york and i saw them open fire and butterfly so so like in the first like from january 10th to february 11th i saw johnny winner bb king jimmy page and jerry garcia right that's just like four weeks on april 9th i saw alvin lee and 10 years after now we all can agree or disagree that Alvin Lee is probably the Ingve Malmsteen of blues, right? Like the well, fastest gun the in the Yngwie West. Malmsteen of that era of guitar playing, of sure. Super fast, right? Yeah, like super, super, fast. super. Yes. And he was a guitar hero to many people, sure. correct? I don't yeah. think that's, I, yeah. that's not hyperbola. He was a guitar hero. Yeah, I, during that time period, yes, he was a guitar hero. Yeah, so I saw, I saw Alvin Lee 10 years after on April 9th. On May 2nd, I see the Jeff Beck group at the Fillmore, Oof. and uh, so with Rod, and um, you know, my memory of it was the to was not so much Beck as great as he was, but the totality of the band because the band was ridiculous. You know, it was it was Mickey Waller on drums. Ronnie Wood played really good bass guitar, by right, the way. Right, Ronnie Wood. Yes, way better bass that. player than a guitar player, frankly. Really, I think so. Okay. I think he's a good bass player. I mean, what did you think of Ronnie Wood? Just a, just a good. Guy, you know, oh, bass player. Yeah, a good bass. I mean, I never saw him live play bass. 
Oh, I got to okay. say, it's one of the okay. few that I never saw live. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I don't pass judgment on something until I see someone play live. That's, uh, to me, the feel. You could play okay. like I do a million riffs and everything, but if you have the feel, like James Jameson, who played everything for Stevie Wonder, mm-hmm. that guy had the feel. He dripped with the feel. So well, I would think feel. that Jeff Beck liked Mickey Waller and Ronnie Wood's rhythm section. I'm sure, yeah, I'm sure. Because otherwise he wouldn't have put up with that shit. No, you know, he wouldn't put up with that. Right? No, he no. wouldn't put up with it. <laughs> All right, sorry, we could say that. So that was May That was May 2nd. I saw the Jeff Beck group. On May 18th, I see Jimi Hendrix and the Jimi Hendrix experience at Madison Square Garden. Wow. Okay? So, you know, so people can start you know, truly hating me, right? On May 30th, again, I see Led Zeppelin at the Fillmore, but they're headlining this time. And Jimmy switched to a Les Paul from the Telecaster. Right. Playing through a Marshall Halfstack at this point, which he was not playing in the first show. So... Uh, let's review from January 10th to May 30th. I saw Johnny Winter, B.B. King, Jerry Garcia, Jimmy Page, Alvin Lee, Jeff Beck. That's pretty fucking crazy, That's, right? Yeah. And, and also, <laughs> I would go home at you know three in the morning, and I'd stand in front of my mirror with a guitar and pretend I was them. Right. You know, that was what I did. Okay. So on June 20th and 21st, I saw The Grateful Dead again twice um, at the Fillmore. And on July 3rd, I saw the Jeff Beck group again at the Fillmore. So that's like the that's like the first six months of of '69. Johnny Winter, BB King, Jerry Garcia four times, Jimmy Page twice, Alvin Lee, Jeff Beck twice, Jimi Hendrix, and and Jimmy Page twice. Wow. Okay. Yeah. That's the first. That's the first six months of '69. Wow. Now we get into July. July twelfth, I see Blind Faith and Free play at Madison Square Garden. That's okay. incredible. Right. But on the thirteenth, which is the next day. I attended a private party with Free and I remember you telling me that story, yes. Right. So 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 I saw Clapton and Paul Kossoff two nights in a row. Okay? So you remember Paul Kossoff was a phenomenal guitar player. Great guitar player. Ridiculous feel. I mean, when you talk about slow feel, I think you'd say Billy Gibbons, Paul Kossoff, and of course Leslie are the kings of slow feel, right? All these other guys are fast, but these yes. guys are slow feel. Slow feel, right? Yes. Amazing slow feel. Amazing seasoning, Amazing. yes. Amazing. Right. So that's uh, so. So July twelfth, I see Clapton with Blind Faith, and I see Paul Kossoff at Free. They both played the Garden. The next night at a tiny little Italian restaurant in New York on the on Gano's, I saw Free play to like twenty people, and I saw Clapton jam with Dr. John, Stevie Winwood. Rick Gretsch, Jim Keltner, and Delaney and Bonnie on stage, right? And in a tiny little Italian restaurant to I mean, maybe 30, I'm 30 jealous. Okay. I was still too now, long to do that. On July 21st, I see Zeppelin again in Central Park. Tickets were a dollar and a dollar fifty. Let's keep in mind. By the way, let's just keep in mind that none of these tickets, none of them, were more than six bucks. None of them for any of these shows. Six dollars was the top ticket. Otherwise, they averaged three, three to three bucks. A pop, all right. So on the twenty first, I see Jimmy. Now on the twenty second, I go to Bermuda, right, and I spend three weeks in Bermuda. I come home on August thirteenth, and who do I see on August fourteenth? I see Leslie West and Mountain play on Gano's the night before they went to Woodstock. The night before they went to Woodstock. Before Woodstock, yes. Leslie goes. I can't do an encore because I got to go upstate and play tomorrow. (laughs) Some big fucking concert. Woodstock. 
<laughs> I'd like to play some more, but I got to get up early. <laughs> I, I love him, man. I miss him so right. much. So, and, and, and Leslie's, let me just say this about Leslie. All these guitar players who I just named blew me away. Leslie's playing at Angano's. I never heard that much volume controlled by that much vibrato. Right. In my life, yeah, I just didn't. Yeah, I mean, I just, I just went through Johnny Winter, BB King, Jerry Garcia, Jimmy Page, Alvin Lee, Jeff Beck, Jimi Hendrix, and yet Leslie is playing at Angano's that night. Absolutely fucking annihilated me, <laughs> like annihilated me. Man. Uh, yeah, yeah. Be, just, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, right. but um, you know, and I've talked. You know, Leslie passed away, and and it, it, it just we miss him, and he was great. And I toured when Twisted was off. Joe Franco and I would tour with Leslie West, mm -hmm. and uh, of course, I was a fan from when I saw him when I was like twelve years old in the Vagrants at a club in in my neighborhood. We just rode our bicycles up to the back door, and the Rascals were headlining, and the Vagrants were open up for him. And I heard and saw Leslie West, and he still wasn't at that tone completely, and that whole thing. It was still developing his stuff, so um, I don't think he really discovered Clapton yet. At that point, he knew about it, but and that's what he told me. I asked him. He goes, "You saw that?" I said, "Yeah." I would remember if you looked at the back door, you saw some kids standing there. I was one of them. So, but correct me if I'm wrong. I mean. The, the the music world is full of such amazing musicians, right? Um, and you and I may like certain ones either together or separately, but it's all subjective. It's what floats your boat. Right. But when you look at the realm of guitar players, you know, the greats out there, whether it's Steve Vai or Eddie Van Halen, um, you know, Ingve Malmsteen, all of these amazing guys, Randy Rhodes, they all have people that copy them. Like, you go out there and you can hear somebody, you know, ripping out Eddie Van Halen and all this stuff. The only person I've never heard anybody able to copy was Leslie West. It's, it's just, it, it's his feel, his tone, and the way he plays in his fingers. And I, I think, I don't know if I ever told you this story, but I've said it on the end. I'll say it one more time. On one of the first few gigs that Joe Franco and I played with Leslie, we played at um, a club, Toad's Place, in Connecticut, right? And it was one of the few times that he actually showed up for a sound check. We got up there, and he played to his two half stacks with Les Paul, and uh, the tone mesh was great between me and him, and he smiled, and, you know, he, all he did was turn the, the, the volume down on his guitar, put it in a stand. So I walked over and I pointed to it, and he was walking towards the dressing room. Said, Leslie, can I try it? He goes, oh, absolutely, animal, take it up. Go ahead. So I did, right? I walloped out those big chords, and he started to smile. <laughs> I was hitting those same, I mean, it wasn't him, but I just got him up there, this big G, the big D, and A, and, you yeah. know, like a C with the bottom G on it, the heavy note. And then I played a couple of riffs, right? And I was, like, kind of proud of myself. I'm not Leslie West on guitar. And he's like, oh, wait, stop, stop, stop. <laughs> What's up? He goes, 
You should have stopped it at the cords. <laughs> Is that what he said? Yeah. To you? He goes, you, nah, you, know, you, don't got, you don't got that vibrato. You know, and I tried. I used to study it and try. Oh, yeah. Couldn't do it, man. He's like one of the few people I couldn't imitate. Yeah, you know, you got guys like Albert King and yeah, guys Albert like, King. Yeah. you know, the, these guys have like these slow note things that like are super Billy human. Gibbons. Billy top. Gibbons, yeah, another guy. Thing. Yeah. You know? It's I, just it, that feel that goes on. And, and uh, you know, it's just I've never seen anybody imitate Leslie West. I mean, I'm sure there's got to be someone out there that could do it. I've never seen it. Well, you know, Paul Kossoff died at a young age, and he, he possibly could have gotten there. You know, he yeah. possibly could have, because his, yeah. his, his feel, his vibrato was pretty damned awesome. Oh, you know? yeah, he was, he was freaking awesome. Um, and of course, you know, Clapton, you know, wrote the book on the Bluesbreakers album. I mean, if you he think sure about did. it, you know, I mean, without Bluesbreakers and without Disraeli Gears and Wheels of Fire, I don't know if you'd have Leslie. No, right? He, Leslie even said it to me. If I, if I never discovered. Uh, you know, he said it to me. If I never discovered Eric Clapton, I would never have the basis for doing what I do. Mm-hmm. And you know, the, the the he even told me that year that he discovered Eric Clapton is when he developed that massive sound because you know, all, and and you and I are big fans of Cream and, and Eric Clapton and Ginger Baker and Jack Bruce, but he took it well beyond that. The chords and the notes were huge; they were just monstrous. And, um, you know, and the first time I saw Mountain Live, I, oh, man, you know, and you just, you heard that power, not so much the volume, but the size of the notes coming off that stage between him and Felix, you know, and the power that it commanded when he turned that volume up all the way and hit a chord, whoa, you know, I mean, it was like the JBL commercial where your hair blows back and everything. Right. Yeah. So where, how do you then... So I, the guitar player did not mention, and uh, and there's more to go, but uh, and yet someone we revere because he is like the American Jeff Beck is Jim McCarty, another Jim guy McCarty. with ridiculous. Well, feel. you know, Jim, uh, Jim McCarty was from um, um, Mitch Ryder, Mitch Ryder to begin with Detroit, right? And right. Uh, they had the song, you know, "Devil with the Blue Dress," right? Yeah. In the '60s, I believe that was. Yeah, right? yeah, 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 yeah. '67. So Jim McCarty is also one of one of our favorites. You know, you right. and I. Uh, Jim McCarty was another one, yeah. just like Jeff Beck. But you got to look at it. You know, Cactus was an amazing band. They were from Long Island. They were incredible, and, but they didn't have the songs that Led Zeppelin had. You know, it was just who has the songs, who's got it, and Zeppelin was British and. And uh, um, Cactus was a bunch of guys, you know, pretty much from Long Island. You know, I, Jimmy, I don't want to shortchange Jimmy Page because no, Jimmy Page's brilliance was not necessarily in his soloing. His brilliance was his composing and his composing. producing, right? Yeah. I think that's his brilliance. His, and I don't want to take anything away from Jimmy Page. His chord inversions and chord structures are brilliant. Yeah, absolutely brilliant. Yeah, and the songwriting was brilliant. So he was, you know, like if you talk about Beck and Page and Clapton, well, well, we know that Page and Clapton made a lot more money than Jeff Beck. We know they became superstars where Jeff Beck was always under the radar. Right. Those guys, you know, Page was a composer. Eric was a Eric. What Eric had that Jeff didn't have is Eric is a very good singer. So Eric could sing the blues. Yes, he could. and and he stayed true to his blues roots. Page was not a singer. Page was a composer. So they brought all brought different things to it. And then you have, 
you know, then you have Beck, and lately I've been watching Roy Buchanan videos again, Oof. because when you study Roy Buchanan, you really understand where Jeff Beck got his tricks from. He got his tricks from Roy Buchanan. Make no mistake about it. Jeff Beck was brilliant because he stole from everybody, and he, and he, and he did it better. So it wasn't just he did one thing. He took the vibrato bar from Eddie Van Halen and the volume swells from Roy Buchanan and the and the and the incredible tone mesh that Roy Buchanan had, plus the picking style of Albert Lee. Like he just put it all together in yeah, one gigantic pot in a way that nobody else ever did. Plus, he could play slow. He could play he could stop that speed and just hit you with like four notes. That could kill you. My favorite Jeff Beck solo is from a song called "I've Been Drinking Again," which was oh, sure. never released in America, but it, it was on a British uh, greatest hits. I know record. the song. Yes, man, it's the tiniest little solo, and it is so freaking emotionally wrought that I listen to this solo and I go, "He just sat in the studio and just went do 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 do." And he just rips this fucking thing and it's not long and it's not complicated but it's just dead on feel but i i urge people watch roy if you're a guitar player watch roy buchanan oh yeah understand what this guy did with the telecaster and you'll understand why how beck why beck dedicated why we ended as uh, when we ended as lovers, which is on the the the, uh, the blow by blow album. Yes. he dedicates it to Roy Buchanan. Yes, Around the cover, I know that. To the yes. memory of Roy Buchanan. Remember There's a reason why. If you want to understand the tricks that Jeff pulled off, listen to that shit. Because sure, watch Roy anyway. And I did see Roy ultimately, like a couple of years later, and he died in I think '76. But Roy Buchanan. When he heard Jimi Hendrix playing with a wah-wah, he was like, I do that with my pinky. Yeah. He goes, the dude needs a pedal? That was Roy Buchanan's right. attitude at Jimi Hendrix. Right, right. Like, I did it with my pinky. Like, right. He wasn't like enamored like everybody else was with Jimmy. Like, oh, my God, Jimmy. He went, I do that shit with my pinky. You need, you need a pedal, dude. Yeah. Like, you need a pedal. Right. I do it with my pinky. Yeah, yeah that, um, that's very funny. So, all right, so let's go. So I saw, okay, so I see Leslie West on August 14th play at Angano's, which, by the way, was, a, a, again, a tiny little Italian restaurant. And Leslie's there with, what, three Sun 1000 S's? Right, yeah, it was a 1000 S or It was actually 1200 S's. It was 1200 right, S's? That, that was, was the, the big guitar amp, right? It yeah. was like the 200 watt amp, and Felix yeah. used the 2000 S's. The 2000, the right, bass, right? right? Yeah. yeah, oh, okay. yeah. Yeah. yeah, and he had that completely, oh. completely square wave, oh. distorted oh. tone that sounded like the largest. And I love Felix Popolardi the way he played and everything he did, but it sounded like the biggest, largest broken vacuum cleaner. <laughs> <laughs> like your Electrolux wasn't a Lux anymore. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, Mark, I, I mean, just, I, I, the tone was amazing. It, yeah. it was just huge. So yeah. understand, I'm now I'm 17. I turned 17 July 20th. So here I am, 17 years old, back from Bermuda, and the first thing I hit is that fucking wall from Mountain, like oh, in Angano's. I remember walking out, going, "What the fuck was that?" Like, yeah, oh, <laughs> you just. Know, I by the way, I I went because I liked the song Long Red, you know, from the first album. That was an FM yeah, hit. Yeah, so I'm yeah, thinking Long Red. Right, da, 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 right. I didn't expect to hear. Holy! Yeah, fuck. that was a that that first Mountain album, and you didn't expect that when they came out because I I saw them right after that, 
you know, at the remember the Palladium was originally the New York Academy of Music, right? Academy of Music, and yeah. uh, they headlined that place on their first headlining tour, and I saw that show, and wow, I said this is not anything like the album. <laughs> it was monstrous sounding, monstrous, huge, you know, and I, I believe that that turned that night turned into. Um, the live side of Flowers of Evil for uh, when they did the whole, um, what did they call the dream sequence? You know, all, all that incredible riffs and, and the jamming stuff they did. Uh, yeah, powerful. Monstrously, monstrously powerful. Was that the first time you were at the Academy of Music then? Yeah, I saw it. Yeah, I saw it. And it's so funny that we were talking about it. I was talking to Mike Portnoy about that also. he did, Of course, he wasn't even born yet, I think. But he was already in 67 bands. Yeah. He wasn't born in, there. in the womb. In the, in womb. the womb. In the womb. In the white womb. But the, the, yeah, in the white womb. Yeah, yeah, that's very good. But yeah, it was at that show. I'll I'll tell you at that show there was two opening bands, and the first one was called Bell and Ark. Ring okay. a bell? No. Like, never but heard of that. Wasn't before. Bell Bell from the guy from the Ramones, Marky Bell? No, was no, it? no. Bell and Ark. Never heard from him again, nothing. The yeah. second band had a major famous drummer in it. Didn't know who he was at the time. Did a solo that, you know, I fell off my seat. It was uh, Black Oak, Arkansas, Tommy Aldridge. Oh, wow, Tommy Aldridge. Uh, I saw him yeah. in 1971. Wow. Yeah, Christmas of 71 is when I saw that show. And he was amazing, you know, just just a phenomenal drummer. So you didn't that. see in '71 when you saw Mountain. You didn't see um, Jeff Beck play, you know, because the Fillmore was shut at that point. Yeah, the Fillmore so, was so, gone. So uh, the Fillmore closed in June of '71. So this was in the winter of '71. That's why you saw them in December, right towards yeah. the end of the year. Yeah, so they like, did a Christmas so, show and gave out yeah, a single. Yeah. yeah I so have Beck it, yes. played. Beck played in in the fall of '71, and he came back from the that. he came back from the from the car accident. Yes. So I went down to that because I wanted to see. Beck play because I had heard you know he could have been you know injured from the, the car and Beck was he had switched to the Stratocaster and he opened with going down and when he played going down he I think he did this on purpose so everybody this is like you can really hate me for telling you but this is what <laughs> Beck fucking did Beck just basically took the Stratocaster now you know the solo on going down is pretty fucking sure hairy, do right? yes it's a powerful ass song right very hairy Beck let the guitar fall through his fingers and play the solo it was going down the neck. Right. I think just to go, oh yeah, by the way, you think I'm hurt? Fuck right. you. I right. could do this just by letting the guitar go through my fingers. Yes. Yeah. Fuck yeah. you. Yeah. yeah. I'm I'm Jeff Beck, motherfucker. Don't right. forget that. All right. right. I heard about anyway. that. I wasn't there for that one. I wish well, I was. I, okay. So uh August thirtieth, Zeppelin played again um at uh at the Pavilion in Queens. Okay, at the World's Fairgrounds. At the Pavilion. World's Fairground, yes. Yes, so I was there. Now, the problem with me on that show was I was so fucked up on acid. <laughs> and, and normally I can remember just about every show I was at. But this is how fucked up I was. So I was going out with my girlfriend, Gail, at the time. And Gail's brother, Steve, was staying at my house. And me and Gail and about ten other people were in my apartment. And we were just getting fucking wasted and we everybody took acid and we we're all about to go on the number seven train right to get out the number to, seven right, right out to, to queens to get, queens right, right to get out to the world's fairgrounds yeah. 
And Steve, her brother, was ODing on acid, like ODing. And he was going, don't leave me, don't leave me. And I said, what's the matter? And he was sitting under the kitchen table. <laughs> I had a kitchen table. And he said, he said to me, uh, I'm an orange. And if you touch me, I'll turn into a glass of orange juice. I'll never forget this, right? So I, because I tried to help him out of the table. He goes, don't touch me. I'm an orange. I'm an orange. And if you touch me, I'll turn into a glass of orange juice. And I said to Gail, let's just leave. <laughs> So, so much for our caring of our fellow man. <laughs> we, we all left, and we went to the pavilion to see Led Zeppelin. And we come home at 4 o'clock in the morning. Mark, we come home at 4 o'clock in the morning, and Steve is sitting in my living room drinking scotch with my dad. Oh, uh, with Lou. 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 Oh, that is a funny and, sight. And we walk in, and Steve goes, thanks a lot. Thanks a lot for leaving me. You know... You know what Lou did? Lou came home, saw me sitting under the counter, talked me into coming in the living room. We've been uh, drinking scotch and smoking cigars ever since. And so that was and that was Steve's. So anyway, we were so we were so fucked up. I don't remember even going, but I know I went because we left Steve to turn into a glass of orange juice. So, or so you shit. don't remember the show at all? Don't remember the show at all. Do not remember, but that was my fourth Led Zeppelin show. Do you, do you remember what type of acid it was? What was it yeah. called? Oh, well, it was either Blue Cheer, Orange Sunshine, Orange Osley, Purple Haze, Double Dome Flying Saucers, or Black Mush, or Black, I don't know. Or Window Pane, or Window Pane, or Brown Dot. I don't know. I, I never dealt with it. <laughs> yeah. I, well, I was dealing all of it, so it was hard to keep track. Of which... but, it, but it wasn't a Ramalama Ding Dong. No, it wasn't a Ramalama Ding Dong, although my, my my head felt like Ramalama Ding Dong, but anyway, <laughs> that was Zep on August. That was Zep on August thirtieth. Okay. However, on September 29th, <laughs> I saw the Grateful Dead again, and you know, because I saw the Dead a lot, I was a big Deadhead, and saw Garcia, and saw them. But on October twenty fourth, I saw the Who. The Who played a whole week at the Fillmore. They did Tommy for uh, a week. Really? And I went to one of the shows that week. I don't remember which one, but I was at one of the shows that week. So October on or about October 24th, I saw Pete Townsend. By the way, he's not a great lead guitar player, but he's a great performer, great guitar yeah, he's player, a great, great composer. Yeah, who, of course, you know, of course. He's a genius. He's a genius, right? He's great. So let, let me who, stop you for a second. Yeah, yeah. Let me stop you for a second. So what was the name? What was his name under the table? Was it Steve? Steve. Steve. Horner Steve. So <laughs> one of our fans on the, uh, on, on the chat said, Wow, I thought when you came home you were going to say there was a glass of orange juice under the table. No, that glass of orange juice was sitting up drinking a glass of scotch is really what it was. <laughs> he turned into the glass of he orange juice. He turned into the glass of scotch, yeah. So uh, I'm so glad that people are paying, paying attention. Uh, we'll be quizzing on you later. All right, right. So, uh, so, okay, so on October 24th. Now, here's, here's the big one, guys. On November 27 and 28th. The Rolling Stones played two nights in New York at Madison Square Garden, but they did three shows in two days. They did a show on Thanksgiving Day, the 27th, and they did a matinee on the 28th and an evening show on the 28th. Wow. And I went to all three shows. So at those shows, I saw Mick Taylor, who was phenomenal. Yeah. And, of course, Keith. You know, it was Keith. But I saw, you know, and those tickets were $6.50. That was the most expensive ticket wow. that year. That was the most expensive ticket that year. Uh, so I saw the Stones three times um, on those two days. And then to end the year, on December 31st, I saw Jimi Hendrix Band of Gypsies from Maurice. Wow. 
No. Yeah, never saw so, any of it. So to review the guitar players I saw in 1969, and I'm writing an article called 1969, The Year That My Guitar Heroes Walked the Earth. That's what the article's going to be called. Johnny Winter, B.B. King, Jerry Garcia, Jimmy Page, Alvin Lee, Jeff Beck, Jimi Hendrix, Eric Clapton, Paul Kossoff, Leslie West, Pete Townsend, Mick Taylor, and Jimi Hendrix in one year. Yeah, that's a lot. That's that's crazy. I I wish I could have witnessed that. I was still too young, 69, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I tell you, Mark, when I did that list, I went, holy crap. That was, you know, that was that was a time, man. That was a time. You got to man. witness things that most people didn't. Yeah. You know, the fact that you lived in New York and and all those bands had to play someplace in New York at, the, at yeah. those times. Yeah, I, I'm not the only guy that saw these shows. No, of course not. But, Thousands but, of people saw these shows. Yeah, maybe, but you're the maybe, only one that I know. Yeah, well, yeah, this I, is I, true. I don't, I don't know anybody else that saw all that. Yeah, and I sure. don't know how many of them saw all those particular shows. But you know, it was it was an embarrassment of riches living in New York City during that time because you could see all these bands all the time. You know, all the time. I mean, I never even explained. I never got to the fact that one night I walked in on Gano's. Muddy Waters was playing. The the club was sold out. There was no chairs, and Nicky Angano said, "Sit on his amplifier." And I went on stage and sat on Muddy Waters' fender for the whole show. I wow. sat on Muddy Waters' fucking amplifier. Really? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's incredible. I don't know what year that was that he played on Gano's. It could have been '69, maybe it was '70, but you know. Um, uh, we had these, li- it's so weird, people have a hard time understanding, but Mark, you know, these British guys especially, they like little clubs, you know, they, and so when they're not home, they like to hang out at bars and clubs, and they like small places, so they hung out at Steve Paul's scene, and they hung out at Ungano's, and they were always there, I mean, they were all, I mean, Bobby Held has so many stories. Yes, yes. The McCoys were a house band, and, and Jimi Hendrix was a regular. And Jeff Beck, they came all the time, and they just played. Whoever was there just jammed. Amazing. Amazing. In yeah, between just, the you, big you shows. You just have walked into something like that. Sure. Yeah. yeah I, I mean, mean, on Ghana's that night that Clapton jammed with Stevie Winwood, you know, I, I, I got a chance to speak to um to Delaney, from Bonnie, from Delaney and Bonnie. Right, Delaney and because, Bonnie. Because um, John Hitchborn, who represents us, yes, represents of course. Bonnie. So he got I got a phone call with her, and I said to her, you know, I saw you at Argano's the night after the Blind Face show because Delaney and Bonnie opened. Open. It was free, Delaney and Bonnie, and then Blind Faith. And she was 17 years old. Yeah, of course. And she said that Eric had seen Delaney and Bonnie play somewhere down south and loved them and said, you're now on my tour. Imagine that. So wow. he took them on the tour. She was 17 or 18. Like the garden was her second or third gig. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, and then and then she's at Ungano's, and I'm watching Ungano's. I'm I'm 16, and she's 18 or 19, and I said to her, you know, that night, well, that that night changed my life. She started getting very misty and crying, and she's she said, I said, well, you never know what kind of effect you have on somebody, and the truth is, Mark, that that effect we've done that to people, all the time, all the time, still get it, yeah, all the time. Sure. You get emails all the time. Sure. You yeah. guys, you know, how many people's lives in, in Long Island did we affect? Thousands. Do you want to say negatively or positively? No, I think positively. positively. You know why? Yeah, Seriously? I've gotten amazing emails from guys, from people who said, you know what? The, your work ethic was something I copied. Yeah. 
Well, yeah, and being, uh, we you know. we just just like some of the other bands, and we had an incredible work ethic, and we we always played, we always delivered, and we were always there to make sure it happened. You know, uh, and uh, you know that was for me joining Twisted Sister. I was never in a band that had that work ethic before. You know, and I've played with some before the Dictators. I played with some you know great musicians from Long Island and Jimmy sure. Coveney and, and Fred Enoch and you couldn't get none of the bands I was ever in had that glue, you know, had that, that, that gears meshing, you know, until I joined Twisted Sister and it was a machine. It was already a machine heading someplace. You know and Yeah, well people don't know it's a lot more than just playing. It's um sure. it's, it's knowing how to run a, a machine. You know who texted me the other day? Julius Mano. Yeah, I talked to him the other day also. Yeah, Julius Mano. Yeah, another what, amazing guitar player. You saw, when's the last time you saw Julius? Saw him? Yeah. Oh 25, 30 years. But I yeah. talk to him occasionally. Yeah. He lives in Texas now. Yeah, he's in San Antonio. Yeah, he said he told me. Yes, and he just said congratulations on. Yeah, on the, same thing on to me. It. Yes, without a doubt, Julius Mano was uh, also a kind of Jeff Beck style guitar player, right? You know who uh, Johnny Gale liked him on guitar. You know Johnny Gale always said big things about uh, Julius Mano. Yeah. How do you put? Where do you put Johnny Gale's style? Wow. Exactly? I mean, what you can't. First of all, one of the greatest on the planet at feel and soul and just amazing um, technique. His technique, technique, knowledge of music, knowledge of of how to structure chords for the music he's playing. Um, it's endless, and of course, his leads just phenomenal. I mean, it's just more. Many, many, many more people should know who Johnny Gale is. What about, you know, Jimi Hendrix is, has gone on record as saying his favorite guitar player was Terry Kath from Chicago. That's what and, he said. Yeah, and it's well known that he said that that, that he told um, one of the guys in Chicago, he goes, your guitar player scares me. He's the only guitar player that scares me. Now, if you listen to the solo of 25 and 6 to 4, no, the song it's a well. pretty crazy solo. It is. It's insane. Did you ever feel that way about him in one way or the other, Terry Kath? Um, I thought he was a great guitar player, but as I said before, you know, all of these things are subjective. You know, what you like in music, it's subjective. It's what you like, what floats your boat. It's just that you and I, when it, especially when it comes to rock music or blues or, or, or that kind of guitar playing, we, we, you know, we're completely in sync with that. You know, we really are. So, um, but, you know, it, certain people... Just when you hear their music and you hear their guitar playing, or you hear whatever mu instrument they're playing, it floats your boat, man. It's just that's what gets what gets you. You know, for me, it's always feel-based music. The you know, soul. what great feel that we don't really talk a lot about, but I think for a while there was a a, a deep appreciation for his abilities, but he kind of like fades in and out. But he's not dead yet. But it's Robin Trower, right? Yeah, because that a, album, Bridge of Size, yeah, that was a pretty had a, damn a great tremendous, record. Yeah, he took that uh, Hendrixy that, thing, that Hendrixy thing with the with the chorus and the phase shifter, and turned it into a complete style. Yeah, that's what he did. And he was he was really good. I mean, I, look, I saw him only in Procol Harum. 
And in Procol Harum, he was your archetype British blues guitar player. Mm-hmm. He was playing through, I think, High Watts with his Les Paul, you know. And he very much, if you listen to um, Whiskey Train, like stuff like that, you hear those, you hear that stuff, which is very reminiscent. Uh, Martin Barr is another one of these guys. From right? Jethro Tull. Great players. Yeah. You know, of a time, and they all had really good taste, and they played just just the right thing, and they fit in their bands, and they didn't didn't really call that much attention to themselves. And if you look at a guitar player like Mark Mark Farner, who became a superstar, but is not a particularly great guitar player. No, but you know, okay. Grand Funk was one of the biggest. But a great frontman of, of the great frontman, you know, and Grand Funk was also one of the largest bands of that era. You know, yeah. the amount of albums and ticket sales were incredible. Huge, Funk. huge. And I saw... Sold, sold out the Shea State. You saw it the well, show I, at Shea. I, yeah, I witnessed that show in the summer of 1971 right. where uh, Humble Pie opened up for Grand Funk. Uh, and and both bands were phenomenal. Just just phenomenal. And just, just so you know, I didn't drink or smoke or try pot or do acid, so I remember the show well. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> Unlike I me, I didn't sit under the table <laughs> thinking about I was getting I'm an orange or something, <laughs> like you and your friends. So I remember the show vividly. Yes. So who was the guitar player at Humble Pie then? Well, you had you know Peter Frampton had already left the band. It was Clem Clemson, of course, Steve okay. Marriott. Because he sang and played guitar, Steve Marriott. And Clem was a very good guitar player. Great wasn't guitar he? player. And that was those guys rocked the house. I mean, I just. Uh, you know, I had I'd only heard of them, and didn't really have any of their albums yet. But I was a fan when I saw them play live, and the feel, and how you how do you compete with Steve Marriott singing? Wow, you know. So yeah, it, it that blew me away completely. But I was also at the time a Grand Funk fan. Also, they were yeah. a great band, a great trio, you know. So you were what sixteen then? No, thirteen. You were thir- 13 when I saw Grand Funk Railroad. Wow. Okay. Right. Yeah. 71. I was 19. Yeah. You were 13. Yeah. 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 I was yeah, 13. yeah. 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 I remember that. It was summer. Uh, I was just, it was right before I turned 14. Yeah. Who'd you go to the show with? A uh, bunch of guys from high school Julius, Brad, Russell, a uh, whole bunch. It was like eight or 10 of us that went. Yeah. What'd your mom say? She couldn't say anything, huh? She couldn't say, I'm going to Shea Stadium tonight. She, she never stopped me. You know, my father didn't even know. You know, he didn't, you know, he, at that point, you know, he knew they knew I was into music. And we right. took the Long Railroad in and jumped on the, uh, what, what train went by Shea Stadium subway? The, the seven. The seven, the, right. The seven so train. From yeah. Jamaica, we jumped on the right. seven train and, and went over to Shea Stadium. And, uh, yeah, oh. it was insane. Because I remember sitting, like on the third tier up, and the tiers were bouncing. It was like you were on a boat. It was that was that insane. It really was. I was like, "Is this going to handle this? <laughs> Is something going to break?" Yeah. Did Did Grand Funk go over great? That Tremendous, night, huge, huge. Yeah. yeah, they were great. You know, and unfortunately, the technology. You know, just like. You know, when the Beatles played Shea Stadium, you know, the technology. The little, the little, the little voice of the theater is a joke. Yeah, yeah. Joke. I mean, it was a joke. So at this point, 
you know, they the world already went through some big festivals like Woodstock and everything, but they still didn't have the technology. So did you hear the bands? Yeah, they had some PA stuff, not like they would have today, where, you know, we've played some of the largest places ever, and, and everybody hears everything. But, um, yeah, you could hear the wind playing with the music. You know, you could hear it swishing and stuff, but it, it was still amazing. You heard everything, yeah. Yeah, and of course, you know, Grand Funk had all those hits at that time, too. Yeah, they did. It was did. constant hits, and Mark Farn is a great vocalist. Yeah, and Closer to Home was the big album, was wasn't the big it, album, right? Closer to Home, and, yeah. And, yeah, they had that billboard on Times Square. They sure did. You know, the sto- you know, the story about that billboard was that Capitol Records put the billboard up for like a month because it was very expensive. It was a whole block. The billboard company went on strike. And the billboard stayed up for seven months. Oh, that's right. I remember that. Yeah, I remember it just that stayed story. there. Right. I was like, the company went Whoa. on strike, so it stayed yeah, there. Yeah, they stayed up there. Yeah, they got a lot of free. Yeah, they, that freaking billboard was gigantic. <laughs> it was like a whole block from Forty Fourth to Forty Fifth Street. It was like the whole block it was a giant, and it was just a black cover with the three of their heads on it. <laughs> yeah, it was crazy. So, you, so, so you go to these shows, and you all come home, and you just pick up the bass and just try to play something that you yeah and i remember that was the first time i actually saw greg ridley you know humble pie uh, on bass and he has got that feel like john paul jones and james jameson it's just that he pockets so well with the drums and i remembered it vividly and i came home and that was the first time that i remember digging into a feel like that not just playing bass digging into it and i played i want to say it was three or four days later uh with the bunch of guys that i I was high school still still in school but i played a a gig with them and they they all turned around and looked at me it was like now it was big and overwhelming you know because you're in junior high school you just thump away and oh this is cool but i started to get aggressive (laughs) <laughs> the bass, you know, whoa, what's going on here? I remember the drummer looking at me and smiling, you know, going, "Yeah, that's a feel." So, so uh, when you go, when you watch somebody like John Entwistle, who had a hard time because Keith Moon didn't exactly keep normal rhythm. Do you know what I mean? Keith Moon was just a great drummer, but he was just all over the place. Like, all over the place. Yeah. How did Entwistle do it? Because he's, he's you monster. consider him a monster bass player, sure. right? Are you, yeah, one of the best ever. One of the best ever. Guy played great riffs and had amazing feel, and he had a, an even tougher job because of the way uh, Keith, you know, Keith played. played drums. Yeah, yeah. Never, I, I saw the Who many times and never missed a beat. John Whistle never missed a beat. Yeah, he was always right there. You know, it's just incredible the quality of the musicians back then. I don't want to sound like that that doesn't exist today. I'm sure it certainly does. Yeah, certainly. There's great musicians today, but you know, we watched the people who started it all, and and are the bedrock foundation of everything that people listen to today. We were at that age where that stuff affects you the most. You know, as the next generations come up, whatever they witness at that age and what they love is what affects them the most. You know, it's still out there. I mean, you know, I'm going to see the winery dogs next week out here on Long Island and get, talk about top-notch musicians. You know, Mike Portnoy, uh, you know, and and Billy Sheehan, the best rhythm sections ever to hit rock music, you know. And Richie Kotzen, what a guitar player and vocalist and songwriter. You know, those guys are just cream, cream of the crop. 
They really are. So yeah. it still exists. It's just you gotta you gotta find it and make sure that it's what you like. You know what what you stuff. I I've seen some bands just videos going. Wow, this is it's insane. Some of this musicianship, newer newer people. Um, Stephen, what was that band I mentioned to you today? Olivia. Say it again. Olivia. Yeah. Olivia. Right. And 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 just unbelievable musician. All instrumental. And just mind-boggling what these these people, what these guys are playing. Three piece. How, how old are these guys? I don't know. Twenties, Stephen. Something like that. Oh, you don't mm -hmm. know? Yeah, they can't. They're not. They're definitely not our age. Well, because the wine dogs aren't spring chicken. You know, they're like no. 50 years old, you know, 60 Billy years Sheehan's old. Yeah. you know our age. Mike Mike yeah. Portnoy's a little younger. So is Richie Kotzen. Right. But uh, yeah, it, it just. Mind-boggling musicians and, and music abilities. You know, they always. It seems like you always find someone who embellishes more upon being better or different than everything that came before it. And and that that's that's incredible. It, it just it's mind-boggling when I saw these videos this afternoon. I was like, wow, this is just something that tough. But I'll say that there's no rock band that gets on stage and rocks better than we do. We yeah. got up there and tore that place to pieces with three songs, you, did. you, did. you know, and and it was like nothing changed. No, you know what? Because like it's did the it only three way weeks. We know how to it's do like it, we Mark. we, we played a month before that. We it felt like we were playing. So yeah, for me, I just walked on stage and did what I do. Yeah, that's yeah, it really exactly did. it. Something happened. So when you started the whole thing, you said, "How did it feel?" It felt weird for the first minute. No, and then once it f fell in, it just. The minute it fell in, uh, you know, and Keith had to get that the tightness on under the blade. You know, he that did. was the thing he needed he to got get. It. You know, he got it really quick, right? Yeah, yeah. So he, he was it. able to do the Eddie thing and, yeah. and no, he, he, that he, deliberate, and uh, and we fell right into it, and it felt fun, and it was fun to do. I mean, it was really kind of like a dream come true in a way, you know, that we did it. Uh, and like I said, I. The anticipation for me was amazing. The only thing I did miss was it's a long way to the top. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, you know, because uh, uh, right, right, uh, when it starts, and all of a sudden my uh, blood pressure goes up, my heart rate goes up, and uh, we were already on stage, you know, doing our, our, our speeches, our thank yous, and uh, so that kind of got me going. But I didn't need to warm up, man. The minute Mike did that first hi-hat hit for You Can't Stop Rock and Roll, I was already I was at the top. Yeah, you know, we yeah. got to do what I love to do. Um, I do, I do have some questions for you that I want to get Go. to. Okay. We we're talking about guitar players and music, right. which is amazing. And you and I could do this for days. <laughs> we really can. We can go on. Um, mm -hmm. You know, everybody. I think a lot of people are are um, aware that you wrote an amazing book um, about your life managing Twisted Sister and what went on. Um, it's a great book. I read it. Um, I'm very close to it because I live those a lot of those days with you, but um, the the book is incredible, and I know that I said you're a best-selling author, you know, and I don't know how much it's sold, but I know it's out there a lot, and and we push it here on this network, you know, um, we love it and everything like that. But you are an incredible writer, an incredible author. Um, if if I if if I would say I what I want to say to you about it is, um, 
what is what is one thing when someone reads your book, not me or Laura or someone we know, but if, if someone reads your book, what's one real important thing that you want to want them to walk away with? What well, would they need to remember? The book the book describes the, the twisted method of reinvention, which is I took the letters, the word twisted, T-W-I-S-T-E-D, and turned them into a teaching uh, lesson. And each letter meant something. So it was tenacity, wisdom, inspiration, stability, trust, excellence, and discipline. So that's the letters. So when I'm doing my motivational speaking, it will say to me, if you could say what one letter what would you take away from it? I, this is what I'll say, Mark. Um, musicians are entrepreneurs. That's what we are. We're not working for somebody else. We're working for mm -hmm. ourselves. And 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 there's only two reasons why you become an entrepreneur. You become an entrepreneur because you want to expose the world to something that they never saw before, and you're willing to risk everything in your life to show it. Or you want to improve on an existing model, and you want to show the world that's how important it is. And with Twisted Sister, I wanted to improve an existing model. The existing model was the dolls, and I thought they weren't good, and I wanted to have a better version of the dolls. That was the whole point. But if I have to look at it, if you don't have tenacity, you have nothing. It's as simple as that. Tenacity is what drives you, and all the rest of it is peripheral, and all the rest of it's important. But if you don't have the ability to get up and do it over and over and over again, you're never going to go anywhere because the greats do it over and over again mm -hmm. all the time. It's as simple as that. The greats do it. If you're going to be great, you do it all the time. You don't do it halfway. You do it all the time. That's what you do. I mean, you watch a gold medal skier. The reason why they won the gold medal is because they're up at 4 o'clock in the morning for 20 years before you're on your fat ass on your couch with a remote control, you know, eating Cheerios. But those dudes are out there, you know, doing it at 4 in the morning for 20 years and 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 that's what we did in the bars you know we did it thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of times and you keep we doing did. it and you keep doing it and every time you do it something changes in your brain a little bit more knowledge comes in you don't even understand that what's happening right but if you're if you're open to it and we were open to it every experience gave us something because we did it so much that we could overcome just about any problem because we figured out a way to overcome just about every problem because we did it so tenacity without a doubt is the single characteristic that separates the people who succeed from the people you know who don't and succeed. you say that we overcome everything and we we had a problem just when we played last week you know a week and a half ago eddie couldn't make it and you know who would think that we were just gonna come up with such a problem that we had to overcome you know and uh how could we have not played when we had we had people from around the world show up at that gig just to see us play three songs you know yeah. and we had a guy from australia flew yeah. from australia to yeah. watch three songs and went back to lax and flew home yeah i went what the hell we had people from japan people from europe people from Without south america it's so funny the guy oh my god a, a, a guy contacted laura and said i'm coming in from alaska just to see this you know can i get an autograph and a photo with mark mark mendoza and i said to her answer him and say i want to see your ticket and your boarding pass and then i'll do it for you you know, I would have done it anyway, but since he made a big deal, he wanted to like, well, I'm coming okay. in from Alaska. Well, yeah. did we ever see him? He did show 
he did show up, right? And I did do that. Yeah, I gave him a picture and an autograph. Wow. Yes. I mean, yes. it was incredible. That's the effect we have on people, that, that everybody knew the band was... First of all, there was no guarantee the band was going to play, but uh, people kind of... Well, we started talking that we would play, but the fact that they traveled thousands of miles and hundreds of hours of flights yeah. to see three songs, to see essentially 10 minutes of live performance, yeah. that's it? Yeah. I mean, you know, Mark, it's enough to make you cry. Dedication. Right? Dedication. Oh my God! It's dedication from them, dedication yeah. from us. So sure. we are the result of tenacity, without a doubt. Without tenacity, you've got uh, so you know, that you don't have tenacity uh, and um, yeah. The, the, your book is an inspiration, even though I lived most of it with you. It's an inspiration. It's a great combination of T.S. the band and J.J. French the manager and uh, the band manager. And um, it, it really it tells some amazing stories, and you could apply that to so many things in life, you know. And the reason that I'm going on is, and I'm, it's not a joke, is because not enough people have read that book yet, and they need to do that. They really do. So, uh, well, the book is called Twisted Business. Yes, I, I will Twisted Business. Uh, hold it up. You have a copy there. I have a copy. You can hold it up. We, do we have a copy here? Here it is. Oh, okay. Twisted yeah, Business. Yeah, Twisted it Business. It's available on Amazon. In fact, in fact, the soft cover is on now, and it's got revisions in it because I found 150 shows that were not in that I put oh, in. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, people wrote in, hey, man, what was it on show? And I started compiling all of it, and it was like 150 that we didn't put in. You know, how did I miss that out of 9,000? I fucking don't know. The fact that we, you know, first of all, Matt Curry helped me put compile all that crazy shit. For years, hurry, curry. Yeah, man, no hurry, curry. No hurry, curry. Yeah, because it was a lot of work to put all those shows together, you know, to, so people could get understand. But I, I explained it in my speech. I said, in the first thirty months of the band's existence, before you and D even joined, I was at thirty four hundred performances, which yes. is crazy. Yeah. But you know, Mark, it wasn't really crazy during those periods of time because everybody was doing it. Even did. when you, even when you were playing in your little bar bands back in the day. You were playing what? Four shows a night, five shows a night, usually. Yeah, I think I think when I finally got into a professional band when I was sixteen, started playing with Jimmy Coveney and Freddie right. Enoch. Yeah, we were doing, uh, I think, four sets a night. Four or five forty-minute sets, because yeah. that's what you did. Yeah, that's what we did in those days. It wasn't like people say, like, "How did you do it?" Well, it's because that's what you did, man. I mean, that's the only way we know it. So when you tell me, "Well, I play like twice a month," isn't that cool? I go, "Well, yeah, I guess it's cool, but yeah, not yeah. to me. It's not fucking cool." But if if you think that's a lot, that's a lot. We used to play thirty shows in a week and yeah. not even think about it, not, not even, even think, about, think it. about it, not even think about and it, and carry the gear and unload a truck. <laughs> Well, you know, I, I, and also, <laughs> a lot of bands go out now and play clubs and stuff, and the clubs have lights and PA's built That's in. That's right. We That's had a twenty-six right. foot truck full of lights, PA's, and amps and drums. How crazy was that? Yeah, that we had to carry that shit around. Yeah, absolutely. You the think the thing... guys from? You think that fucking our buddies? You know, Bobby couldn't have put a fucking PA system in the final exam. You know, like, I mean, <laughs> Bobby what the Jordan. Fuck? I mean, Bobby Jordan couldn't have, Bill Doherty couldn't put a PA system. In, I wish, the, in I wish he was here to, uh, to, to uh, debate that with us. Yeah. You know, the fuck, man. By the way, I recently rewatched our uh, documentary. And I watched the extra footage because I never watched it before. I never the saw interview. the extra footage. Oh, oh. Really? With Bobby Jordan's all over it. 
Oh. And the and the parentes are all over it. Oh. The parentes are like so funny. George goes, you know, so Twisted comes into the room, you know, and, and they got this crazy fucked up reputation. And all I said to D was just do me a favor. Just don't mention my mother my last name. It would drive my mother crazy, right? So just don't mention our last name. You can fuck with the club. And he, what the fuck does he do? He gets up on stage and he goes, Parente, and what happens? My mother starts getting all these fucking phone calls. <laughs> It's just, it's just, it's so precious and so funny. People, people, you know, you, I, you just don't have those kind of scenes around and those kind of characters, no. you know, like Bobby Jordan and the and the Parentes, and then of course, you know, Tony the real, the real from Gemini people don't. You're right, right. You have uh, what was his name from Gemini? Tony Molino, Tony from Molino, Gemini, the Spolero brothers the from Spolero uh, brothers the Found from Found Casino. Casino, and then you had the Bill real Dory. good fellas. Yeah. The movie oh, then you had, of course. Yeah. Then you that had, was you the had real Goodfellas. Deals. Yeah. yeah. The you real Goodfellas. Yeah. That's which was basically the home of you know every caricature of every mob movie you could ever have. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I remember this one story. There was an Irish guy who owned Beggars uh, Opera in Beggars Queens Opera Village. in Queens. Sure. And and he was a he was a retired fireman and he had lung issues because I think he had he had inhaled asbestos or something. So yeah. I know he had. And he didn't want Twisted to play because our fans wore jeans, you know. And he oh no sneakers, and he wanted the fans to like look more like disco people. And he told Kevin <laughs> Brenner, I don't want Twisted Sister because the fans wear sneakers. And Kevin said to him like, Are you out of your fucking mind? They'll fill your room, you know. They'll fill your room. No, no. So he goes to see us at Speaks, and I think Phil Basila, Larry told me that he came to Speaks and he's standing in the back with Phil and uh, on a Saturday night, so there's 2,000 people in the room and we're goofing on Speaks, we're doing that commercial but da 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 the most ice in your drinks right, the most potholes in the parking lot the most most water in the drinks the most rats in your burgers, all the shit right, right, the most obnoxious bouncers Yes. right, exactly, and he says to Phil how can you put up with that, and Phil goes do you see how many thousand people are in my fucking room? They can say fucking anything room. they want. Fuck. Yeah. Yeah, every time they play. They can they look any way they want. I got 2,000 people in here. What are you, out of your fucking mind? I yeah. mean, it's like, I have to say, Phil was very pragmatic, you know, in that situation. Yeah, he, he, he goes, knew it. I mean, it, it, it was just amazing. And then you you look back at it, it, now, you look back and you see that, and you're like, well, you know what? Those guys were the movie, the good fellas. You know, that was them. You know, was it really them. was, and we we you know grew up that with them, them and didn't know all of that at the time. No, no, and thankfully we didn't. You know, we yeah, just went off our we merry way. And yeah, yeah, they loved think us. About it. And then when uh, and when who was it? Was it uh, Larry Tortorici? Who found our gear in the middle of Austin Boulevard? No, that, that was that that was uh, Uncle Ralph. Uncle Ralph, right? Yeah, he goes. Right. There's Mike stands all over Long Beach <laughs> Road. Mike stones and guitars all over uh, Austin Boulevard, not Long Beach Road. Austin. No, Boulevard. Long Beach. Was, well, he it's said. I, I just remember he going. It was right. Said, Austin Boulevard. I, I was home and I call up. You know, because Elmo told me all the shit was missing, and then I I called the club and I and the old guy at the club said that. The stuff was still at the club, and I called, and I called Elmo, and I said, "I said, let me ask you a question. How many of you motherfuckers load the truck? Four of you. How did you group hallucinate? You loaded the truck because all the shit is that speaks. It's impossible. I said, it's not impossible. I just spoke to the the custodian, who's like some eighty year old guy from Sicily who barely speaks English, and he says to me, "What the fuck is with your band? There's mic stands everywhere. There's boxes and mic stands." I said, "You left it all at the club." How did you do that? And he goes, there's no way. And then I had the phone call from Uncle Ralphie, who goes, who goes, 
Hey, JJ, it's Uncle Ralph. You know, I was having breakfast with the... Uh, of course, the street the East Bay Diner. East Bay Diner. Yeah. And Fat Scotty comes in, and he Says, goes, Hey, Mike, hey, Ralphie, there's Mike stands all over Long Beach. I get <laughs> my car, and I drive him. down the road, and your fucking shit is laid out for two miles. And I right. get to the end of it, and some guy is loaded loading in, in the his, back of a truck. A van, and I pull back out, of his van. And, and I pull and, out my gun and say, Excuse me, it belongs to my me. That's my You're going to put and, it back And he very nicely returns it I mean, all the, the stuff that happened in those How days. How do you do that, man? Well, he How left the, the door open. You know, Elmo drove no. like he was in, you know, the, the Daytona 500. Well, they he forgot. The, it was so like cold, that. the padlock didn't lock the right. back of the truck. It, so remember that parking lot was so fucked up? Right. The lips on the parking and he lot? he would go through the parking lot at 60 with with the truck and our equipment in it. You know? So, so I mean, that, those are nights. You know, people go, what nights do you remember? You don't forget those nights, Mark. Oh, God. And, uh, and it wasn't too much after that. Remember, we did we showed up at a gig in New Jersey. It wasn't Bobby Jordan's club. It was another club, and everything had mud all over it. Oh, because Elmo unloaded Elmo in a rolled rainstorm. the truck on Sunrise Highway, and it was pouring rain for days. And he rolled the truck into the mud, and he had to unload it by himself on its side yeah, <laughs> so they could yeah, write the yeah. truck up. And he put everything back in it. Yeah. And he continued, and everything had mud on it. Yeah, well, he also he also he also challenged. I got a phone call from U-Haul one day. He said uh, Elmo got into an accident. So what happened? Well, he decided that he would race some guy on Route 110 yeah. with the truck, and somehow the truck went over and split the roof, and uh, we got all the gear back. But I remember I said to Elmo, "What the fuck?" He goes, "He goes, you know what's amazing? The truck kind of went over in slow motion." <laughs> We laugh about it now, but it was like it's yeah. our it's our livelihood. Yeah, the truck. truck went over in slow motion, and he opened up the passenger window and crawled out, crawled out. the passenger yeah. window and didn't die. Uh, you know, uh, uh, it's just uh, the shit that happened, yeah. which has nothing to do with playing music, by the way. Let me no. tell you, this has nothing to do with the no. art of playing music and entertaining people. This yeah, is well, just the bullshit that this you deal is, with. This is, this is some... Of the tenacity that <laughs> yeah. went into your book, <laughs> living yeah. through these things. You calling me at, at 6.30 in the morning going, you got to follow the route that Elmo uh, took home. Yes, and yes. I found our Altec, our Altec um, monitor board that tracked the trailer ran it over. Remember, it was smashed. You know, yes, I found it on the, the side. Well, it all started with him saying, "I saw, looked through the rearview mirror in the LIE, and the and the mon and the mixing console was in the middle of the LIE. And when I went to get it, it was run over by a truck. That's yes. how the, the conversation started. Right, exactly. And I found <laughs> and the Altec board on a ramp on the Seaford Oyster Bay Expressway. Fuck yeah, me. you got to you called me. You got to go. You got to go follow the route that Elmo took. And I'm like, what? You woke uh, and get dressed. Called Scott. Scott, get up. Get over here, man. We gotta go. We gotta go find this stuff. We may have to like kick some ass because we didn't know what happened. And then it was they put it all back in speaks. You know? yeah. <laughs> what does this have to do with playing the music that we were? Uh, but there's a million stories as you, you know? were saying. Wait a minute. What about that gig in Jersey? That club we had to wrap everything in tinfoil. Oh, because so by that guy wearing a mink coat, yeah. and he yeah. had he was next to a big antenna, like yeah, a FM a radio, radio tower, or transmission tower. That was creation. Creations in orange. There once and. And the whole Charlie had to wrap everything in Reynolds wrap. Yes, yeah, because the radio station bled into all the equipment. Yeah, and in those days we didn't realize that we were getting fried, like standing in a microwave oven from a five thousand watt transmitter up about two hundred feet. 
<laughs> right next to the building. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, anyway, so, yeah, the, so when you ask about the band, you know, yeah, and you want to talk about the band, you got to just go past the music part. It's just get into the ridiculous. Tell us all the stories. That have. So, yes, you know, we were f- constantly coming up with uh, um, solve problems that happened. It wasn't just go play every day. There was something uh-huh. came up more than occasionally. That it just, you yeah. know, and, and just, our livelihood is in this truck. And here's our light man kicking it out during the week when we're off because he has not have a car. So he goes out drinking and partying. In our truck. truck. Yeah, in our truck with all the equipment in it. And we didn't know it at the time. He said, no, no, I leave it in my driveway. You remember that? It went by his house on like a Tuesday night, and the truck wasn't there. <sighs> and I stopped at a payphone. You know, back then, it was nothing. And I, you know, the truck is not at Elmo. Is Elmo doing like sound for another band or something <laughs> and using our equipment? It was just out partying, that's all. No. Yeah. Maybe there's another book in here. Yeah, maybe so, uh, there's yeah. another book know. in there. There's certainly, singer, there's certainly sit around the campfire and tell stories, that's for I sure. Yeah, well, but I will so, say, just getting back to this thing, and before I, I, I uh, because I, I have to get going, but I will I, say I just, that. I want to ask you a couple more things. Ask these questions. That'll be quick. Yeah, um, yeah. A two-part question. Laura and I were yeah. talking about things, and after you know talking about you and the book and everything, what is the one question that you hate being asked? What is oh. something that's just, I, I don't like answering that. It's just, anyway. it's the two the two. two the two most questions I get asked, which is how did the name start? I get sick oh. of that. And also, are you friends with D? You know, are you guys friends? That that's I get asked that. I, I have to say, that's like, you know, all 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 the time. That's really it. You still and get so, those? Yeah. I yeah, do. I don't I don't get those anymore. I did. Yeah, I do because people just peripheral they, but they don't know they don't ask me this because of a specific story. They ask me this because they think bands don't get along. Do you know what I mean? Right. So they want to know if, if you get along with your singer. Not D necessarily. Right. But just, you know, like, uh, do you guys get along? It's a very general kind of a statement, you know? And I either have to be mentally prepared. I go, we're fine. Yeah, we're fine. Um, I just also... <clears throat> or I have Sharon answer for me. <laughs> now you now you're really asking for problems. Now you're really asking for problems. Sharon. And anyway, uh, one more for you. Yeah. What is the one question that you wish someone would ask you? Oh. What was the one question? I what is something that? nobody ever asked? Yeah, you just stumped the chump, Laura. You just stumped the chump. Wow. No, he's not a chump. He's JJ French. But still. Um, Look, he didn't come up with this one. I got him, man. I love it. We got him. I know, because it's not like who's your favorite guitar player? We know that. Um, uh, Maybe if you like the Beatles so much, how come you don't know any Beatles songs? Because I don't know any Beatles songs at all. You can't play never, any Beatles songs? No, I really don't. And and, and this is going to sound really weird. Okay, I'm, It already I'm sounds say, weird. What, 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 what's, what I'm going to say is really bizarre. But considering the fact that I loved Grateful Dead, loved them, but never cared for Garcia's playing or his tone or anything having to do with any of the instruments they played. I just liked them as a thing. And how much I revered the Beatles... 
and loved their music. I never wanted to own a country gentleman. I never wanted to own a Rickenbacker. I never wanted to emulate their guitar so sound. I never learned their songs. I kind of treated them like as this object to be admired and I put on the side. I know it kind of sounds weird, okay? No, but no. but but I admired them as this untouchable process that I never delved into. And I, and the Grateful Dead, for all the jokes one wants to make about them, whether you love them, you hate them, whatever, uh, you know, because I've seen them more times than I've seen any other band. I've seen them 27 times. You know, it's a lot of times to see a band. It's a lot. Most people don't see a band 27 times. Right. And you go, and people say, well, you make jokes about them. And how, why did you see them 27 times? They gave me something. Uh, in the early back when being a deadhead meant something, which is back in 68, 69, 70, right, 70, right. 71. And, and, and it's legendary. They did legendary yeah, things. Legendary, and I was on sure, acid and sure. I got it. I got what they were. But I never wanted or cared to ever play their music. And I never liked guitar, like Garcia's shtick, although I respected it 100%. Well, so they let me had, be really clear they, about it. They, I respected it, just never got into it they had an amazing business you know they and did. they an incredible business they had probably the best sound system at the time possibly you know uh the way certainly they, the most certainly the most adventurous system ever built yeah, ever built. more like a an esoteric hi-fi system yeah. you know yeah. so um yeah. and that that leads into a whole other thing which we're not going to do tonight because i wanted to get into some hi-fi talk with you but uh you have to go and we're running out of time so I want to. Uh, you did like that picture I sent you though today. Oh, the clips. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's like well, let's build a room and fill it with two speakers. <laughs> that, they were huge. It was just it like I said to you, it dwarfed all the furniture in the room. Those speakers, yes. Happy life, no wife. Yeah, right. <laughs> happy, happy life, big speakers. <laughs> yes, that's it. You ain't got nothing else going on but that stereo speaker. When oh, I walked man, into that room, which I will take you to, you go. That's. One hell of a statement. Oh, that's your friend's apartment? But no, no, no. It's just the, the store is designed to oh, make it look like store. a living room. Oh, yeah. That's a, I gotta, that's a I gotta store. I got to see this and hear this. I, you got to go to the store. Yeah. I, and that, that's going to be a whole... We're going to continue on with the the stories and everything like that in the, in the near future. I'd love to have you come back on and spend another evening with us, and then we'll get into the uh, some more of the book writing things and the esoteric hi-fi stuff, because you okay. and I can... BS about that stuff for hours, and uh, well, JJ, I, I thank you for spending an evening with us, man. It is great. The chat's on fire. Boo Boo says hello. He's watching. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Clapping. Did we pay you for that trip out to New Mexico? No, or we not? still owe him the money. Right. We're not paying him. It's been too long. <laughs> we paid too long. We're not paying Boo Boo for that trip out to New Mexico. Picking up our RV. <laughs> RV. Oh, God. Boo-boo does the West. Oh, my God. Yelling at oh, the God. pilot. You know, the treetops right there. He's going, bring the nose up. Up, up, up. And I don't, I'm not, I don't doubt that he wasn't yelling at the pilot. You know, one of those puddle jumpers, some really small six-seater What, plane. to get to Raton, New Mexico, right? To get to Raton, he get yeah, there. he flew a major airline, and then he had to get to Raton, New Mexico. And he said, he said, I was... Praying that they had enough, the, the rubber band wrapped enough times to keep us keep us up. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, just just his story is incredible about it, and he still right. tells the story. And I'm not going to get into the whole thing, but he said the worst part of the story is the fact that all of that food we had sat in that refrigerator in the sun oh. for 
a month. Oh. And then he opened the refrigerator and passed out. Oh. oh. <laughs> okay. What it smelled like. He said there was things growing in there that couldn't <laughs> grow on earth. Okay. <laughs> anyway, JJ, thank you so much. Uh, my friend, thank you, my friend and bandmate and, uh, you know, partner, man. It's just, I love doing this stuff with you. We have such a great time, and we had a great time with D also, but, you know, I had a great time with you, and the stories are endless, and we could, we should get on and tell some more and talk about some, BS. say that again? TS. Yes, we should do, the, we should do the BS on TS. That's what we should do also. When I when I return from uh, from Mexico, yeah, know, the spring, we'll we'll schedule you back on. We'll bring you back on, and we'll have fun with it. That's all. You got it. We'll just let you it go. It. And we've been on for an hour and a half now, and it's uh it's great. And uh, but I could see that you have to get to bed. It's past your bedtime. <laughs> okay, you old fart. <laughs> Yeah, Everybody. it's 8.30, Mark. Yeah, it's 8.30. Really, I mean, I, New York time, now. right? Everybody, just in case you don't know, Eastern Standard, New York time, it's 8.30 p.m. <laughs> um, thank you again. I've said it already, right, but Mark, thank you again. You, you're, you're one of my best friends ever. And, yeah. uh, you know, you're, you're a brother to me, a brother that I, I never had. You, you're a brother you really to me, and, yeah. uh, and, 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 and in closing with that memory that D had with AJ, yeah. uh, we love AJ. Oh, miss him. Him. And it was great that, that Nicole was there to represent him. At yes, the, at the, it was at great. The, and it was great that Michelle was there to represent him. And Michelle Andy was there OJ for Eddie. Yes. But, uh, but, you know, um, but we love AJ, and, um, and, uh, and it was great uh, doing, the, doing that 10 minutes of, of stage time. It was wonderful. Thanks a lot, Marky. I will see okay. you soon. Well, I'll talk to you tomorrow. Soon, we got some business got to do, it. but I'll talk to you tomorrow. Everybody, the amazing, the great, best-selling author in the world, J.J. French. There it is. There it is. See you guys. Everybody, thanks for tuning in. I'm Mark Mendoza. This is 22 Now on Area 22 Productions. We are here every Tuesday at 7 p.m. New York time. So don't forget what I say. Stay hungry, stay well, stay out of trouble, and I'll see you next week.